Good afternoon. This is Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. Dr. John Hunt, your host. This is our show that we go from four to five every fourth Thursday of the month. And usually it is a live call in. But uh, as long as we're in this pandemic mode, we're still taping our shows. So today's show is a taped show. So unfortunately, my listeners can't call in. I also, as I do every month, remind uh, my listeners of my pet sounds that five minutes short on Sunday mornings at 730 in the morning, prime time. I'm still doing those, been doing those for about 12 years. Uh, some interesting topics coming up. Today, uh, we're going to celebrate uh, the month of March is a National Poison Pet Poison Prevention Month. And I have a very special guest today, Dr. Aaron Katribe, a veterinarian out in Colorado. And uh, she is the medical director for Best Friends Animal Society. Good morning, Aaron. How are you? Good morning, John. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for, for uh, spending the time. I know you're very busy. Uh, you're in um, about three hours behind us, time-wise. Yeah, so in in Utah, actually. Is, oh, Utah. Uh, where, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. It's where Best Friends Animal Society's home base is. And how did you get here from there? Great question. So I am a veterinarian. I graduated in 2009 in Texas, uh, and from there, I actually practiced emergency medicine for a few years before moving into shelter medicine. And so while my current role is, is with Best Friends Animal Society, I am no stranger to pet poisons and preventing pet poisons. Um, I made the move to animal welfare in 2017 full-time working for Best Friends. And, and I am now Best Friends Animal Society's medical director. So how did that, how did you morph into that aspect of veterinary medicine and how much of it, how much medicine are you practicing now as, as a director? Yeah, good question. I always knew that my passion was in nonprofit and helping animals in shelters and, and specifically helping those animals that didn't have other options or may not have homes and were losing their lives in shelters because of that. And that's, that is what Best Friends focuses on. That was always part of the plan. Uh, but in school, I really enjoyed emergency medicine, and, and it was a great way for me to get a ton of experience really fast. Uh, I, and I also just enjoy the pace of emergency medicine. I still occasionally go and do emergency shifts just because I, I still love it. Uh, and, and you mentioned, you know, how much clinical practice do I do these days? Uh, definitely less. Um, a lot of the work that I do is focused on national strategy, but I still consult on medical for all of the best friends life-saving programs in various cities across the country. And I do a lot of direct work in shelters, both with shelter staff, with shelter veterinarians. And sometimes that's bigger picture, like looking at shelter operations, but sometimes it's individual cases too. So do you travel a lot then? Lately, not so much. <laughs> right, a, right. Not counting a, this year. Yep. During during non-COVID times, absolutely. I do a lot of travel to any of our cities that, that have best friends programs in them and also just to other shelters to, that, that may need assistance. So as a as an emergency veterinarian, you like you said, you, you did come across a lot of toxicities and poisons. And this month is a the time to highlight that. 
not the toxicities, but the prevention. And there are a lot of things that our pet owners can do and should be aware of. Um, some simple things, some things not so uh, obvious that we want to talk about today. Uh, first of all, there's a lot of changes in our industry, not well, a lot of changes in our lives, a lot of new products coming out for our use, and some are not too safe for our pets. So what are some of the new things that have come out, let's say in the last five, 10 years, that uh, is a real problem with t toxicity that we hadn't had to deal with uh, 10 years ago? Sure. Um, one of the ones that I saw in clinical practice and that I think is definitely on the rise is a substance called xylitol. It's an artificial sweetener. Um, most of the time we find it in products like artificially sweetened gum, but it, it also is found in some really surprising places. It can be in protein supplements uh, or protein bars, and sometimes it's even found in certain peanut butters. And so that one is one I think, again, I think we're seeing it on the rise. It, it's not new, uh, brand new, but we're definitely seeing more of it as it's found in more and more products. Now the peanut butter is a significance because a lot of us use peanut butter to hide pills for our pets. And uh, it doesn't take much xylitol to poison some of our pets. Is that true? Yep, that's absolutely right. So xylitol, when we eat it, it's just a sweetener. Doesn't It's no different than any other artificial sweetener or even um, in what it does to us. But in dogs and cats, their body responds to it as it does to sugar. And so the body tries to, to process it. What ends up happening is that that xylitol isn't processed in that same way and the body ends up processing what sugar is there. And so their blood sugar drops. And so it can, it's a very potent substance. And so their blood sugar can drop really rapidly, even with a small amount. And especially when we start to think about our smaller patients, like smaller dogs or cats, uh, it can happen really, really rapidly. And with only you know a piece or two of gum, depending on what that con content is in that gum. So it kind of tricks the body into thinking it's got to uh, take care of the sugar and then it's really not there. It uses it all up. Yep. That's exactly okay. right. So, and, and back to the peanut butter, do they, do the peanut, do the labels, food labels, do they have to have xylitol on it or is it can be uh, part of other ingredients? Xylitol will usually be listed in the ingredients list. And so just a red flag or something that you can kind of use to, to make sure that you look at that label is if it is, you know, any sort of uh, peanut butter that's targeted toward for dieting or towards low fat or any of those things, we commonly see extra sweeteners in lower fat options and, and it will be listed on that ingredient list. So, so do look for that. Ideally you want something that just has good old peanuts, not, not any extra salt or sugar in it uh, as well when we're looking for, healthier treats to give to our dogs. Ah, you snuck in a little bit of a health advice there. That's very good. Good job, Aaron. <laughs> uh, so this, um, if it is consumed and you didn't realize, what, what are some early clinical signs? I hate to be, say clinical. What are some things that your pet would start doing that would alert an owner to, oh my gosh, I got to call the emergency hospital or their vet? Yeah, with that particular toxicity, it's, it's signs of low blood sugar. So if, if any of you have experienced that yourselves, you might know what that feels like. What we can see in dogs is 
uh, lethargy, they might just slow down, they might not want to rise, so extra sleeping. If they are getting up and moving around, they might stumble. And, and any of those things can be an early sign of, of dropping blood sugar. And when blood sugar drops below, below a significant level, we can see things like seizures or convulsions, and that can be pretty dramatic. And that's definitely a big red flag that, that we need to get in contact with that right away. Good. Okay. Good advice. So what other new products have been uh, invading our pets? Yeah, one, one new product. Yeah, one new product I get a lot of questions about, and unfortunately, we don't have a ton of research on. But is essential oils? They're becoming just more and more popular, and that can be used in diffusers, so oil diffusers, or sometimes the actual oils themselves are applied. And then, in cases of of our pets, sometimes our pets decide to ingest them, which is, is ideally not what they're meant for. In general, you know, we, like I said, we don't have a ton of information about them. We, we can go so far as to say, you should probably not use diffusers around birds. Birds respiratory systems are just very, very sensitive. And there are definitely some that have the potential to cause problems in dogs and cats. Um, we, we don't really know what long-term exposures might do, um, wh whether it's for birds or dogs and cats, or honestly, even for people. But so my general recommendation is there are probably many that are fine to have around, even invested in small amounts. But because we don't know, uh, if, if you are into essential oils, I just recommend keep them out of reach of your pets. And, and I would avoid using diffusers if you do have pet birds in the house. So this goes in the category of being natural, have all natural products, which is uh, can be tricky because like you say, some of these natural products are toxic. There was years ago, there was a problem with pennyroyal oil that people put directly on the dog for a flea product. Have you heard of that? I have heard of that. Um, it's not something I've, I've had any direct experience with, but Good. you know, they, they are, they're natural, but, but there are many natural plants that are toxic. And the, the other challenge too, is even natural things, when we distill them down into, into high concentrations, something that that wasn't poisonous in its normal form can definitely be poisonous when we, we concentrate it in that way. So got to be careful with all natural, all natural yep. doesn't mean safe. Always uh, call your vet if you have a problem with that. So the diffusers actually, I, I can understand the birds are very sensitive, but ha you've had cats and dogs react to uh, the, the um, vapor? None that we can definitively link to diffusers, uh, and especially not in, a, in, a, in an acute exposure, so just a, a one-time exposure. What we don't know much about, though, and again, even with people, is, is what might this do over the long term. Um, and so I just encourage people to, to use caution uh, you know, and, and stay on top of what new research is coming out. Um, I think in lower doses or occasionally used, probably not a big deal at all. But what long-term chronic exposure could do, we just really don't know. And there are so many different oils out there made from different products or different uh, initial, you know, plant formulations. That gosh, I think I think it's going to be a while before we we really know what those long-term effects are. And there's no quality control of these products. So what yeah, they say is in there that could be some contaminants, right? That could be yep. even more poisonous. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Okay. Any other new products, new things in our lives that are affecting our pets. Yeah, uh, another one that's not 
not new in and of itself, but definitely newer products are coming out and the frequency is increasing, is going to be products associated with CBD or with cannabis. Certainly as more areas look into legalization or we have the, the, an increase in popularity of, of CBD products and newer synthetic products, uh, some of which might have those higher concentrations in them, um, we're seeing that on the rise as well. And uh, when I was practicing years ago, um, usually what happened with marijuana was accidental, quote unquote, in quotes, ingestion. Uh, we had one dog came in staggering, like he was drunk, basically. And they wouldn't, the owners wouldn't fess up as to what happened. Finally, I talked to the mother of, of the household. She said, yeah, my son had uh, weed on the uh, coffee table and the dog got into it. So it's accidental ingestion. But there's so many different forms now of uh, gummy bears and, excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, uh, gummy bears and things like that, that are even more edible for pets. So how, how many, have you seen actual toxicities uh, from this? Yeah, so, so a true fatal toxicity, those are, those essentially don't happen. The, but we can definitely see some pretty profound clinical symptoms with these higher ingestions. Again, the size of the pet matters. This is what we call dose dependent. So a, a small dog doesn't have to ingest nearly as much as a large dog does for us to see some clinical signs. Um, most commonly what we see is just what you described. It's staggering, you know, stumbling around. Um, sometimes they have trouble controlling their bladder. And that's a pretty common sign. And for any veterinarian that has seen a pattern of these or has seen several, it's, it's kind of a red flag for us that, that this might be what's going on. I would just, you know, encourage anyone, even if it's not technically legal for you or in your state, be honest with your veterinarian. It gets us to, to treatment much faster. And, and frankly, there are lots of way more serious things that can cause stumbling and, and lethargy and weakness that, that'll cost a lot more to treat and are a lot more dangerous. We don't care what you're doing in your downtime. We just we just want to treat your pet. So just be honest with us if you think that's a potential toxicity. Uh, I support that 100%. It really does help your veterinarian and it will help your pocketbook too. There may be a lot of needless uh, tests because like I say, stumbling is can be any number of things. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Any, uh, so do you foresee, um, do, you, do you foresee some, added problems with the way CBD is now being made, or it's just going to be kind of part of the toxicity family of ingestion once in a while? Yeah, I think, you know, with, with particular products, I think it makes it more appealing to, to our pets to ingest. But I would also say too, I think just keeping an eye on what's happening out there and the research, just as we're, we're only beginning to figure out what therapeutic uh, factors or what therapeutic applications they might have in humans. We're, we're only beginning to explore that in dogs and cats too. And so I, I think keeping an eye on this is going to be really interesting, both for human medicine and veterinary medicine. But in the meantime, just as you would with any medication or any, any product that has a potential toxicity, keep it out of reach of your pets in the meantime. And if, and if you are concerned, control your vet. Okay. I'll put you on the spot. What do you mean by out of reach? That, that can mean a lot of different things to different people for, for a pet. I know for kids, but for like a cat or a dog. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, some of it depends on the pet too. 
Um, I know I've had cats that know how to open cabinets and dogs that can open doors. Um, in general, it means secured, uh, maybe in a higher cupboard, depending on, on if you have cats that, that can get into your cabinets. Um, I, I do support for any chemicals or, or substances that, that have a higher risk of toxicity, keeping those in, in locked or secured cabinets, similar to you would child-proof, those the same sorts of, of uh, locks or mechanisms can be applied to keep pets out of you. If your pets don't have access to places like your garage, that's a good place to keep any of those, those chemicals. Um, but, but remember too, pets can, can get into places they're not supposed to accidentally, they slip out the door. So keep that in mind. Um, in terms of you know, our, our medications at home, even child-proof bottles will not keep dogs out. <laughs> so again, I think it's keeping them as out of reach as possible and, and securing those cabinets if you have super inquisitive pets. Plastic will not keep a dog away. <laughs> Absolutely not. And, and not only do you have the, the issue of the potential toxin, but then you also have the plastic that they have ingested and what potential problems that can cause. Yeah. It's like eating chicken bones almost, that plastic. Any other new, uh, any other new products that have come to mind? Those are good ones. Those are. Yeah, those are, I think those are the bigger ones that we're seeing on the rise from, from just changes in what's popular and, and changes in products that are coming out. And can you uh, clarify the, the new antifreeze versus the old antifreeze? They say the new is safe. Uh, should my listeners be a little bit wary of that? Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of different formulations of antifreeze. Most of what's out there is still very, very toxic. The big change has been that we've added an agent that makes it less appealing. So the toxic substance in antifreeze is ethylene glycol, and that has a really sweet sugary taste to it. Companies now add well, bittering agents to, to make it taste good, and that's to prevent not just pets, but children too from ingesting it. These, these are substances that can be brightly colored and are so, so can be really attractive. Um, but, and then that sweet taste especially is really attractive to pets. And that bittering agent is supposed to you know, counteract that. Now, I think many of us know or have dogs that ingest things that we can't possibly imagine taste good. <laughs> so, so these things are still definitely a risk and the addition of a bittering agent is, you know, that's not gonna prevent a toxicity. Hopefully it will prevent a large ingestion, but, but again, this is another one where you don't have to ingest very much for it to cause a problem. And so, so we still need to use extreme caution if we have any of these substances around. Was there a, was there a time where they actually reformulated the ethylene glycol? There, there's, there are products out there that have propylene glycol in them instead, instead of the highly toxic ethylene glycol. Ethylene, um, that's, what, that's what I meant. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, but, but again, I mean, there, any chemical in general, we just want to keep it out of reach of, of pets and our people. So just a treat antifreeze, no matter what, like you always did very carefully and uh, keep it stored. A lot of people don't change the radiators like they used to in the old days. Uh, most cars are, you never, you never, you never even open the radiator cap anymore these days. So that, that has decreased the poisoning. I, I think that is definitely true. However, if you have a leak 
that that alone again it doesn't take much and and cats are very very sensitive and so it just takes a few licks to to cause toxicity in a cat and that is absolutely something that that i have seen in practice um sometimes you don't know for sure there's been an ingestion uh, and we do have a a test that can look for potential exposures to ethylene glycol Um, but again you know any any potential exposure i recommend reaching out to a vet because it doesn't take much and again, this is getting back to uh, the staggering. You can get staggering from ethylene glycol. And if, uh, if you're not straight with your veterinarian about the marijuana, could have been antifreeze, that could steer your veterinarian the wrong way. And that's critical in treatment, uh, two different kinds of treatments. Yeah, that's absolutely right. If, if we're suspicious of an antifreeze or ethylene glycol toxicity, this is often either expensive treatments, you know, potentially days in the hospital on fluids and, and checking blood work, so lots of lab testing. Whereas for you know a mild marijuana ingestion, it's it's, it's really basic care and yeah. and just supporting them through it. Are there uh, old? Well, it used to be kind of getting along with the, the ethylene glycol, but that's really not an issue because it's still poisonous. Are there uh, products that pets we thought was poisonous and now, now they're really, they're finding that they're really not poisonous? There, for me, there's not, there's not anything that easily fits into this category that I can think of, you know, and the, the one issue that I, I think about or that I worry about is anytime if we suggest that something might not be toxic anymore, because as products change, many folks still have old products around their houses. And, and so I worry about that. Uh, one thing I guess I will comment on is, is paint. So, and again, similarly as it's toxic to people, um, older paints contain lead uh, and, and they don't need more, but, you know, unless we have the, unless we know what a house was painted with in the, in the case of ingestion of actual paint chips, or we have the can around, it's difficult to know. And, and paint can still contain other compounds, ethylene uh, glycol actually. And while it's in low amounts, it, it can still be a problem if a, if a dog ingests enough of it. So if uh, kind of once a poison, always a poison kind of thing. I, I think it's best to, to assume that. And okay. You know, as we've as we continue to say, when in doubt, call a veterinarian. And and we do actually have pet poison control hotlines that that are available where we have veterinary toxicologists that can can really look at what exact substance or substances your pet has ingested and look at their exact species and weight and and advise you appropriately on on what needs to be done. One thing I did uh, read recently along those lines was they were saying that poinsettias aren't as poisonous as they thought. Is that a uh, is that wrong too soon? Yeah, that's a good one. And I was always taught as a as a kid. I remember this that poinsettias were were so toxic, and they they are not toxic in the same way that many other plants are that can cause, for example, kidney shutdown. They can cause stomach upset though. Really almost any plant, depending on the, the individual that ingested and their sensitivities. And, and especially, you know, if, if it is a higher ingestion, any plant can cause stomach upset. 
that is primarily what we see in the cases of animals that adjust poinsettias, if they are going to have a problem. I think many pets can adjust a little bit and it's not an issue at all, but, but definitely the more sensitive, sensitive pets, we can still see some stomach upset. And you know, if, if that is fairly self-limiting, probably not a big issue, but again, for our smaller pets, they can get dehydrated quickly if they're having some, some vomiting or diarrhea. And so what, you know, if you're concerned, you know, you can always seek out that care. Good idea. This is Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras on WERU 89.9 Orland, Maine, and your host, myself, Dr. John Hunt. And we're talking with Erin Katribe of the uh, Best Friends Animal Society. She was also in emergency medicine. So we're kind of concentrating now on poison prevention in our household pets. Uh, one of the things, too, is that there are, there are safe plants that you can have in your house. Uh, so I, I do have a couple, couple I listed. I don't know if you have them on the top of your head, but there's some, there are plants that, that you can have in your house that are not poisonous. Um, yeah. The, if, if that's uh, something that you're interested in, I've definitely seen plants even that are marketed specifically for pets. So you can grow a small tub of grass uh, that, that is not only attractive to cats, but is, is safe. So, so that's definitely one of them. Um, any of these items that, that are marketed in pet stores, you can rest assured those are likely safe for our pets to ingest. But if you saw one um, at a uh, nursery, would it be best to write it down and check it out, make sure that that person is right because they're not in the animal field? They just may have read it someplace. Yeah, I mean, if it's not something that is specifically, you know, vetted by a pet store, uh, I, I think it is a good idea to write that down and, and do some research on it. Um, there are, you know, reliable websites. So the ASPCA runs the a National Pet Poison Control Hotline, and they have a lot of reliable resources online. And so if, if I had to direct pet owners to, to one resource, it, it would be their, their poison control find out what's toxic, what might not be, if they were interested in doing some additional research. It's springtime, at least over here in New England. I don't know, it's like in Utah. Uh, grass is getting a little green. I can look out my window here, but uh, people are starting to do spring cleaning, uh, not only in their house, but also outside in the gardens. And we've been talking a lot about things you find inside, but how about outside poisons and, and dangers? Uh, in the gardens and uh, and uh, driveways and garages. Yeah we, yeah, we touched a little bit on like antifreeze that you might find in a garage setting. When I start to think about any of the, the outdoor dangers, I really just think about any of the, the number of various chemicals that we use. And so those things can be pesticides. Um, they can be fertilizers. There are specific specific pesticides, for example, uh, baits that's used for snails in particular. Those can be pretty pretty awful to your garden, and so we like to keep them out. But those, even more so than many other common pesticides, snail baits can cause some pretty profound toxicity. Uh, and then the other one that, that is actually very common for pets to ingest is any of the rodenticides that, that we might be, you know, we might have in our garages or our attics. Um, if those are ingested, they can cause some issues as well. 
So are they, how about compost? And you said fertilizer, any particular kind or just any fertilizer? Yeah, different, different kinds will have different issues. Um, you mentioned compost is, is one to think about. Compost heaps, I, I know that is um, more and more popular. I, I certainly have one uh, in my backyard. And if pets have access to that, that can also cause some issues. Um, certainly the, the chemicals themselves and depending on the formulation, but anything with, with mold, we can see some fungal toxins. And so that can be when pets get into garbage or when they get into compost piles. And if any of those substances are, are in the compost, that can be problematic. So what uh, we, we've talked about a lot of different poisons. Is there a top five uh, poisons that you see come into the emergency clinic? Yeah, the, if you look at actually annual data from the, the poison control hotline, they, they do compile that and, and they release a list every year what their most common calls are. I will share that in my experience, probably the most common one was chocolate. That I think is a pretty well-known problem or toxic agent for, for dogs and cats. And, and I do think the, the hotline probably gets fewer calls on that one just because it is something that a lot of veterinarians are familiar with treatment and it's been around for a really long time. It does make their, their top 10 list every year though. So, so talk is probably the most common one that, that I saw in practice. And then the other, other top one I would say is, is medication. So there are a number of medications that are safe for people that are not safe for pets, even in small dosages. Or as we talked about earlier, when, you know, often when a pet gets into a bottle of human medication, even if, if one tablet wouldn't have been a problem, uh, the whole bottle certainly can be. And, and that goes for, for pet medications too. Um, some of our veterinary formulations are flavored to make them easier to give to our pets. But again, while one tablet is therapeutic, an entire bottle might, might be quite toxic. Especially the, the new formulation formularies are, are, uh, mixing medications that like uh, a paste be easier for cats and it's usually liver flavored or something like that. So that makes it even more attractive uh, for them to overdose on their own medications. Yeah, it absolutely does. So any other popular chocolates? Uh, is is uh, milk chocolate worse than dark chocolate or? So the toxic uh, potential of chocolate is around its cocoa beans. So things like uh, baking chocolate that have more cocoa uh, are actually more dangerous than milk chocolate. Uh, most often those are products will actually say on the label what the percent cocoa content is. And so with any toxin, if you're going to consult the veterinarian or the pet poison control hotline, if you have the package and you know that cocoa content and how much of it by weight they might've ingested. So the whole bar, half the bar, um, that can be really helpful in deciding, you know, how, how dangerous we think this congestion is. So maybe that our listeners would like to know chocolate. What, what's, you know, I eat chocolate, talk chocolate all the time. So what is it that is poisonous to, to dogs and cats in the chocolate? Yeah. So there's a couple of things. Chocolates fall under the category of methylxanthines. So big, fancy, long word. And then the caffeine that, and they're, a relatively small amount of caffeine in most chocolate, but I think we all know that and I have experienced it as well. And so those are the, the toxic compounds. And it caught it affects what part of the body? Yeah, what what we will commonly see so early in chocolate ingestion is is 
stomach upset. So it might cause vomiting, can cause diarrhea. Um, and sometimes that's all it is. And, and that would be a, you know, a lower level ingestion. At higher levels, it can cause hyperactivity. And so they might seem jittery or overactive. And then at really high levels, it can, can cause actually things like seizures or convulsions, and those can be pretty dangerous. And that can be uh, even a fatal toxicity in some cases. It can also uh, disturb electrolytes. So, you know, our body normally regulates electrolytes that have a number of functions all over our body. And when those get out of balance, it can, can also cause a number of signs, including heart arrhythmias or, or heart palpitations. That's scary. <laughs> That's pretty scary. It, it absolutely can be for something that is still common. Um, again, most ingestions don't don't reach those levels, but but you don't know until you actually start doing the math. And and so I, you know, I, I always recommend have that label available. And it's it's better to be safe and take those precautions and 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 have that you know pet monitored in a clinic situation rather than saying oh gosh I, I don't think this is toxic it was just a little bit let me just take them home um sometimes you know there are other things going on and other underlying illness we may not even know about that can can contribute to, to a toxicity so you're in your kitchen and you're cutting up a bunch of vegetables and your dog is faithfully sitting right by you waiting for what we call the fallout and of, of course you want to give him a little treat so you throw him a carrot that's okay maybe uh, a little celery, that's okay. But then you give them a bit of onion, a bit of avocado, a bit of uh, uh, something else. So what kind of vegetables that you normally, you make in your salad that uh, you don't want to give your dog or cat? Yeah, you touched on onions. And so that's definitely one. Uh, garlic, it's in the same family as onions. And so those two are toxic and, and garlic is actually more potent than onions are. For onions, he, you know, dogs, particularly larger dogs have to ingest a, a reasonable amount for, for garlic, it's much less. Uh, it's best to just avoid either one of those um, and avoid any products that might contain onion or garlic powder. We oftentimes in veterinary medicine use baby food to as a, you know, as a, a delicious, enticing food for, for any of our, our patients, either for pills, for medications, or just pets that, you know, are, are sick and don't want to eat. Uh, and, and we recommend that to clients too, but so always avoiding any baby foods that, that have onion or garlic powder. Um, you, other items that are toxic that, that are surprising, I think are grapes and raisins. So either one of those can be toxic to dogs and cats as well. I had a, a many years ago, a, a owner of a golden retriever came in for office call and he was bragging about how great his older golden felt because he had arthritis. And I said, what, uh, what, where do you, what are you doing to make the dog feel better? So, well, I soak my raisins in gin and give him six soaked gin raisins a day. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> I know in those days, this is many years ago, raisins, we didn't consider toxic, but apparently, um, I don't know he thought it, it didn't poison the dog, fortunately. Um, yeah, the, the challenging thing, especially even for myself that I experienced as an emergency clinician is that we don't fully understand the, the toxicity compounds in grapes or raisins. And so we don't have a great established dose. So for things like chocolate, we, we know a lot about it and we can, 
you know, for the most part, predict what signs they expect to see at certain dosages. But for grapes and raisins, we, we absolutely don't have that. And so we can generally say, you know, if, if a small dog ingests a lot, we're much more likely to see a problem than a big dog ingesting a tiny amount. Um, but there's also cases that don't, don't fit that. And we've seen toxicities at smaller doses, or at least that we think are related to grapes or raisins. Um, and so again, in an absence of, of you know, overt evidence and knowing what that toxic dose is, it's always better to, to be safe and sorry. And, and so we'll, we'll see if, if we have any concerns. Well, with the, and with the rise of exotic animals, your reptiles, amphibians, which certain states do still allow, and you mentioned birds, uh, that adds a whole new dynamic to uh, poisoning in our pets. Uh, can you address some of the kind of unusual uh, aspects of toxicity to the exotics? You mentioned uh, the breathing, the, the, the birds breathing in the, the uh, essential oils, but are there other things you need to watch out for with clients that have exotic animals? Yeah, absolutely. The, again, the, the biggest thing in birds is, is they are very, very sensitive, sensitive to inhalants and there's some surprising things that you might not expect. So one of the, the common ones we talk about is nonstick coating on cookware or in self-cleaning ovens, just using that cookware in the house with a bird can, can actually be fatal for them. They're, they're also super sensitive to any fumes from cleaning products. So things like bleach that we might use around the house, but even if they don't come in direct, into direct contact with it, that can actually cause some significant respiratory issues in birds. Um, avocado is another surprising one for birds and different types of avocados are, some are more toxic than others. And so just in general, we say like, let's just avoid them all. Uh, again, not, not a lot of great information and, and birds too can vary a lot in their body size. And, and even any substance that is toxic for a dog or a cat is probably going to be toxic to a bird as well. Uh, but the challenge with birds is that they are super inquisitive and super interested and willing to eat things. And their body weight is so small that what might be not a big deal in a Labrador is a huge problem in a, in a bird. So that you mentioned the non-cookware, that's unique to the bird. I mean, it wouldn't hurt dogs or cats. As, as yep. I understand. Okay. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It, and the, the common one that we talk about is Teflon, but it's, it's that same substance in any non-thick coating. Um, not a problem at all to, to use around the house if you have the dogs and cats, but if you have birds, um, definitely there's some great resources out there online, but talk to an avian vet about, about all the things that you need to look out for because birds really are, they, they're quite sensitive to a lot of things, but the dogs and cats aren't sensitive to. And some of the other exotics like hamsters and gerbils and the like, they're usually in, in small cages, so they can't get out and do stuff. Um, but not, but feeding them, just keep with the diet that's recommended. Don't start adding. Yeah. Supplements. Any, any diet that, yeah. Any diet that's formulated for them is, is going to be safe. And, and then there are a number of, you know, fruits and vegetables that are safe. But again, I would look for some information either from your vet or from trusted resources online, like the ASPCA about what things are safe. Um, you know, lots of vegetables. We, we mentioned carrots. Uh, I know lots of dog owners like green beans and those are pretty safe too. You know, a lot of the common fruits and vegetables are okay, but they're always ones that surprise us. 
And so I think that lists of safe things rather than, than straying from that. Now we're talking about um, what can harm our pets. Let's move into how we treat them. I think the first part is at home. Is there what I'll call it an emergency kit that owners should have on hand uh, specifically to address uh, toxicities and poisons? What, what can they have in a little box or whatever ready to go? Yeah, the, the most important thing to do when you're ever concerned about a toxicity actually is to reach out to a vet first. And so as part of your, your sort of poison control kit, that's actually the number one thing that I'd recommend having is phone numbers. And that will be both for your regular veterinarian, but you know, emergencies, including toxicities, don't always happen during normal business hours. And so it's always a good idea to have the number of a local emergency practice also available. And as I mentioned, there are pet poison control hotlines. Uh, often the emergency practice may direct you to that hotline anyway. And, and it's, even though those hotlines do have a cost associated with them, they can, you'll get in touch with a veterinary toxicologist that can look at your specific pet and the specific toxin. And, and sometimes the, the expense of that call uh, is much, much less if they say, oh, that's probably not a big deal. You know, you, you don't need to go in compared to us, you know, not knowing and, and being really aggressive with treatment. And so oftentimes that, that cost is well worth it. Um, and those, those toxicologists, if treatment is warranted, they will consult directly with the veterinarian that you go to see in person. So I do think they're, they're worth it. And again, I did it myself as an emergency clinician, particularly because there, there are a million different things that can cause toxicities. And so um, having that specialist on hand is, is, is huge and can make the difference in, in treatment being successful. Um, in terms of other things to keep around in a, in a kit, uh, I, I think again, phone numbers are the most important. A couple of things that I do think about though are if you're worried about contact poisons, so something getting on the animal fur that could be a problem is to keep this good old Dawn dish soap around. We, we can use this to wash off the fur uh, and it's safe um, for, for our pets. So if they get a chemical on their fur, on their skin, um, that, that can be really helpful. Uh, anytime they get something on their fur, I also worry about them licking it off. And so what was just the contact poison might then become an ingested poison. So anytime you have that, it's good to try to get it off as quickly as possible. And then, one other item that, that I get asked about a lot from, from friends and family is, and, and you may have heard of this, is hydrogen peroxide um, and keeping that around to induce vomiting in dogs and cats. And, and it comes for me with a long list of, of caveats. There are some toxins that we don't actually recommend inducing vomiting for. And veterinarians have access to the medications that induce vomiting that are a lot safer than hydrogen peroxide and, and don't have the adverse effects that we can see if we induce vomiting with hydrogen peroxide. And, and so while it's not a bad idea to have it around the house, I would not use it or recommend using it without consulting a vet or a veterinary toxicologist first. If you are in a really remote location and your pet has ingested something that we do recommend inducing vomiting for, and we think that the time to get to a vet is gonna be so long that, that it could be problematic, that might be a time that we would recommend using it at home. And we only recommend it or only use it in dogs. We don't generally use it in cats. So it has a really, it's a limited application. 
And again, I would only use it at the, the guidance of a veterinarian to avoid any of the other side effects that we can see with it. But again, particularly if you live far away uh, and, and getting to a vet might not be an option, um, it may be reasonable to have that on hand. So yeah, so having hydrogen peroxide in your emergency kit is there in case you can be uh, instructed by a veterinarian. You don't use it by your, on your own. And yeah. please don't use salt. That's an old technique of, of a couple of teaspoons of salt. Uh, that could be very, very harmful to your pet. It's just interesting. Wonderful. I haven't heard of that before, but yeah, that could yeah. definitely be yeah, that, cause some toxicity of its own. Yep. That was an, that's an old, an old treatment. Maybe it's up here in Maine. I don't know, but that's uh, people have used that. So basically uh, phone numbers are your critical thing. Uh, I think the Dawn soap is excellent for that um, topical because that could be critical while you're calling the vet. It can't harm won't harm the pet getting that stuff off them if they yep. pick up. Yep. That's absolutely correct. And, and sometimes, you know, like I mentioned, our, our pets like to groom themselves. And so what, you know, if they get a chemical on their skin, that may not be a problem as long as it stays on their skin or their fur, um, if they ingest it, it could become a problem. And so getting that off um, or keeping them from ingesting it is, could be the difference between a, a toxicity and not. Another thing that came to mind to add to this emergency kit is the um, to teach your dog the command drop it and or practice with your pet, including your cat, to open, be able to open their mouth without getting bit. Because a lot of times you'll see them in the middle of ingesting something. And if you have the, the ability to get the object out of the mouth or make a command that will go a long way in further ingestion. I just wanted to add that to our emergency. Yeah, that is, yes, that is absolutely an excellent idea. Um, many times we, we try to get our pets used to us handling their mouths so we could administer medications, but it is also very useful to be able to remove things as well. Be a good idea. So, uh, now you have a pet that you can't, you've done what you can at home and you call the emergency vet or your own vet and they say, bring them on in. So um, let's talk about treatment at the vet hospital. One thing I, we talked about before our, um, our show is maybe explain uh, the difference to our listeners between uh, treating an animal, uh, an antidote and supportive care, the different ways animals are um, treated I'll say treated for toxicity and I, I, maybe the distinction will help people understand what you're doing when you're treating yeah. pet. Yeah. So for some of our toxins, we have antidotes, we have a specific medication or a specific compound that will um, either inactivate or directly counteract that particular toxin. I would say that list is, it's not huge. But, but definitely if we have that available, then that is, that's ideal. Oftentimes we don't use those just by themselves, but we will also implement principles based on, on just general toxicity. And so I think about things like what we refer to as decontamination. And then like you mentioned, just general supportive care. Um, supportive care might be something like putting an animal on intravenous fluids. And that's just to flush everything out is kind of how you might think about it. 
It, that's particularly important in certain toxins that might affect, for example, the kidneys, but, but in any toxin that can help. Or like I mentioned, lots of toxins, uh, sometimes this is the only effect, but sometimes it's in addition to other things. If they cause stomach upset, you might keep them on fluids so they stay hydrated. For, for those uh, toxins that we do recommend inducing vomiting for, that, that part of decontamination. And so in vet clinics, particularly emergency practices, we have really potent substances that, that can induce vomiting um, that don't cause other side effects that things like hydrogen peroxide can cause. Um, and so they're, they're much more ideal. And, and then one final compound that I'd mentioned is called activated charcoal. And, and that's a substance that a veterinarian might give orally to, to a dog or a cat. And what that does is it absorbs toxins that's in the stomach or in the gastrointestinal tract and it binds it up. And so it basically prevents their body from absorbing that toxin. And so it's part of decontamination for, for many toxins. And so that combination of the induced vomiting first, we, we get out what we can, and then we give that activated charcoal to hopefully absorb as much of that toxin uh, that's in the GI tract as we can. And, and then it'll you know, get this move through the GI tract tied up in that charcoal. And then when they excrete the charcoal, they excrete the toxin and, and we don't see any body from it. So you have decontamination, get rid of the toxin if it's still around, then neutralize whatever's left, and then supportive care for damage that may occur to the organs like the kidneys or liver. It's supportive care is what your fluids and things like that. And yeah, yep, uh, yep. Anti-nausea medications. If if we had some stomach upset, or some animals are just particularly sensitive after we induce vomiting, and so we may give some anti-nausea meds after they they have finished their that portion of decontamination to to make them feel better. Um, for things like kidney toxins keeping them on those fluids to keep those kidneys supported. And uh, for things like liver toxicities, we, we have a number of different medications and supplements that we can give to support the liver. And so, yes, exactly. Those, those supportive things, while they are not treating specifically the toxin, they can hopefully help prevent some of that secondary damage um, to organs that that toxin might cause. So you're, the veterinarian does a lot of work. There's a, a lot goes into treat, treating a, a, a poisoned pet. And that's important for listeners to understand that. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. And, and, and I've referred to, to this a couple of times, but there's an entire specialty field of veterinary toxicology. And, and it is through your veterinarian that, that you can have access to veterinary toxicologists and that poison control hotline, um, or even just veterinary resources that we have available to us. Um, that are created by toxicologists. And there are, again, there's so many poisons out there and, and many of them, the dose matters. Um, and so having access to, to those resources is, is huge. The other thing I would mention, and this is from personal experience, when those toxicologists are immensely helpful is, you know, when pets don't just get into one thing, but they get into a number of things that might uh, have interactions the oftentimes we see that when an animal gets into a medicine cabinet or ingests a multivitamin, multivitamins can have, you know, a number of different compounds in them. And so just knowing 
you know, you have this list of 20 different substances a dog has ingested and, and which of those are going to be a problem and which aren't. Um, and in, in this combination, which might be a problem, um, having a, a specialist, that's what they do with toxicology is, is invaluable. That's a good point. A multi, multi-poisoned. Any other um, words of advice for poison prevention month for our, our listeners? Yeah, just a couple of things. One, keep those phone numbers on hand. Your vet, an emergency clinic, and, and potentially that poison control hotline. Sometimes time to, to getting treatment is, is you know, can make the difference in, in treatment success. And so getting treatment quickly is super important. And then just take a look around the house, you know, with, with this in mind, with poison prevention in mind and, and put things out of reach that could potentially be harmful or that you think your pets might get into. Good words of advice. We do have a couple more minutes left. Maybe we can talk about uh, your organization and what its uh, uh, primary purpose is and, and, and what you do. Yeah, I love that. So I am medical director for Best Friends Animal Society. And Best Friends is a national animal welfare nonprofit organization. And our focus is on ending, ending the needless deaths of dogs and cats in our country shelters simply because they don't have homes. Our, our goal, our current focus right now is to get every shelter in the country to no kill by, by the year 2025. And we, we do this in a number of different ways. Some of it is through direct work in, in cities where we have best friends programs. So things like foster programs or an adoption center. And we have those in several cities across the country. And then we also do this uh, a little more indirectly, which is through helping all of the shelters and rescues out there to, to save more lives themselves and, and to get each and every one of those shelters to no-kill. And how do you go about doing that? And how, how, uh, how are you progressing to get to reach this 2025 goal? Yeah, great question. We have come a really, really long way. Um, it, it used to be millions and millions of dogs and cats that would lose their lives every year in shelters. And, and that number is down now to about 600,000. My but goodness. That's, but that's every year and that is still too many, right? We wanna get that number as low as possible. We, when we talk about no kill, we, we use a benchmark of 90%. Um, but in reality, when we say no kill, what we mean and what we want isn't just a number. It's, it's we want no pet to lose their life simply because there's not space. We, in, and we do that through, through a number of programs. Like I said, we've made a ton of progress and, and we know what works. Uh, it's through programs like increasing adoptions in local communities. It's through trying to prevent animals from having to come to the shelter in the first place. Can we help communities rehome animals you know, before we ever get to the shelter? Um, and can we do things that, that help people keep their pets and keep those pets in, at home instead of needing surrender to a shelter because of behavior reasons, because of medical reasons or, or things like that, or because of housing and inability to find pet-friendly housing? Uh, just one last question. Has the pandemic helped or hurt your cause? Have you developed new ideas coming out of the pandemic? Like, like many industries, we were profoundly affected by the pandemic. It has definitely changed what we do. Um, the biggest shift has been a move from 
sheltering animals in, in buildings in a traditional shelter to putting them out into foster homes and, and basically making the community our shelter. That's a much better environment for a pet, right? Sitting on somebody's couch or in somebody's yard rather than being in a, in a kennel in a shelter. And so the more that we can expand those programs and, and keep pets in homes, even if it's not the home that they're gonna stay in long-term, um, that's a much better environment for them and they can get better health and they get better better attention that way. And so that's been the, probably the biggest shift. And you think that will continue after uh, all this pandemic mess is cleared up? We, we absolutely want it to. It, it's harder as more folks you know, find themselves going back to work and they have less time at home to care for those pets or for those, those foster pets. Um, but the more that we can do it, like I said, it's a, a much more natural environment for those animals than, than being in a shelter kennel. And so the more we can do it, um, you know, the, the better it is. And, and it increases our capacity too, because every home could have a foster pet or two. Um, and that's, that's much greater than any number of kennels and any number of buildings. So, so if I have one thing to say to your listeners, it's, it's go visit your shelter and foster a pet. Uh, is there, are there local chapters of the uh, Best Friends Animal Society or, or you're the main office that people would contact if they wanted to be involved? Yeah, I mean, I encourage anyone to check out our website. We, we do have programs in a number of cities and we have what we call our network partners, which are all of the partner shelters and rescue groups that we work with. Um, and, and you can reach out to any of them or, or just reach out to your local shelter. There, there are shelters that aren't tied to us in any way and still have, they still do amazing life-saving work. Um, and and our, our, I'm sure would be absolutely willing to help any of your listeners who they want to foster or adopt. Thank you very much. This has been very informative. I hope our listeners got some good ideas of keeping their pets safe at home and a little bit about the uh, Best Friends Animal Society. Dr. Aaron Katribe, thank you very much for spending time with us. Um, and hopefully you'll be on again sometime. Thank you so much, John. It was delight. So this is Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. Dr. John Hunt, your host, and signing off. And remember, enjoy your pet and don't forget to give them a hug. <laughs>